Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what will be a really great conversation on asthma phenotypes. Today, as our guest, we are fortunate to have Dr. David Price, the senior author of this CHEST publication, entitled Eosinophilic and Non-Eosinophilic Asthma, an Expert Consensus Framework to Characterize Phenotypes in a Global, Real-Life, Severe Asthma Cohort. David, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm David Price. I'm head of the Observation and Pragmatic Research Institute in Singapore and Optimum Patient Care UK Global and Australia. And I, the, 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 I'm here actually as the coordinator for the International Severe Astral Registry, whose work we'll be discussing. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. We also have the um, author of the accompanying editorial, uh, Dr. Ramesh Kurukulachi. Uh, Ramesh, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. It's a great pleasure to, to take part. Um, I'm Ramesh Kurukulachi. I'm a clinical academic at the University of Southampton, Southampton, UK. My research interests are twofold, really. I'm uh, very absorbed in the uh, study of the natural history of asthma and allergy across the life course through some of our longitudinal cohorts that we house here at Southampton. But I'm also interested in the real-world characterization of difficult-to-treat asthma, and I've established a cohort at Southampton called the WATCH study for that purpose, which links in with my clinical role. Uh, so I'm a practicing clinician, a consultant who specializes in difficult-to-treat asthma and complex allergy. An absolute pleasure to have you both on the podcast with us. So, Ramesh, maybe you could uh, kick us off um, um, to start this podcast. Why is it so important to characterize different asthma phenotypes? Well, I think what we've all come to learn over the last two decades is that asthma just isn't a single condition. It's actually composed of numerous phenotypes or subspecies. And these different phenotypes show very different patterns of behavior and they may show different outcomes or prognoses, and they may actually show different treatment responses. And as a consequence, we're really sort of moving into this new era of trying to personalize our treatment approaches for patients with asthma according to the nature of their disease. And that movement has really gained momentum in recent years with the advent of these new more advanced biological treatment strategies for severe asthma that target particular treatable traits such as eosinophilic inflammation and T2 inflammation, as we would call it. So the interest really is focusing particularly on that phenotypic construct of eosinophilic disease or non-eosinophilic disease. And that really lays the, the sort of foundation for uh, our current sort of approach in classifying phenotypes in asthma. And it really sets the scene for this fascinating paper that we're going to discuss from the International Severe Asthma Registry. 
So let me pull David into this conversation. So David, which uh, broad categories uh, of uh, or phenotypes uh, do we have for asthma at present before you conducted your study? Well, I think there's been, I mean, there's, there's been a bit of discussion and there's many different classifications. That's been one of our challenges, I think. Um, but certainly within the, uh, so if you take the genus strategy document, I mean, the estimate there was that about half of the patients with severe asthma would have an eosinophilic phenotype. Um, and, uh, and then there's been some debate about the extent of that eosinophilic phenotype, um, the comorbidities that go with that, which might, so it's not just an eosinophil count driven, it may also be other markers that suggest that phenotype or a T2 phenotype is another way of looking at things. Um, and then we've also got those, the, what, what's been regarded as non-T2 asthma being discussed um, and a rather, rather difficult discussion. I mean, we, we've actually got a, plan, a study planned within ISTAR currently to look at that population in much more detail. But it's very hard to say where your lines get drawn in terms of eosinophils, phenos, IgEs, etc. So there's a real challenge here, I think, about correctly classifying phenotypes. And I think what's exciting to us was the potential to use large data sets plus the advent of our new biologics um, to really, as we've got interventions that impact on those phenotypes, um, to really then look at response size, et cetera, versus those underlying um, factors. So that will help us to really, I think, unpick that in much more detail than we've ever been able to do in the past. So you conducted a historical registry study. So maybe you could give us a, a brief motivation and then your study methods for uh, your study. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so our motivation as ISAR is we, we actually have a um, – we've got now 23 countries participating, I believe. Um, so the idea being to collate as much information as possible. And uh, our collaborators each year vote on key priority studies for that network. And this was one of our earliest uh, voted on projects to really understand the extent of the eosinophilic phenotype. Most of our collaborators felt it was much higher in their clinical practice than was being suggested by GINA. So that drove us to think about this study. And then in terms of your study methods, how did you go about conducting your study and how did they address any limitations of the data that was preceding the beginning of your study? So as previously published in CHEST, um, the International Severe Asthma Registry has agreed um, with, with its collaborators a core set of data that would be captured on every patient um, with severe asthma within those registries. So the Delphi exercise was conducted to um, collate all of that key information uh, built on some of the learnings from both the Australian and the, and the British severe asthma registries, where I think people have been very over-ambitious previously in collecting a lot of data and then realizing that was hard to do. So that standardization of data was a key part of enabling this. So um, things like having the highest bloody eosinophil count before people were given a biologic, understanding if people were on long-term steroids, whether they have comorbidities such as nasal polyps. So all of those things being there enabled us to conduct um, this study. And then so from a methodological... Sorry, carry on. No, go ahead. 
No, I was just going to say, so from a methodological point of view, we were then able to, we then, we then, we had then had a, a big discussion about how we're going to define that eosinophilic phenotype. And that, that was uh, Liam Heaney, actually, um, who's the lead author on the paper, had the breakthrough moment and said, well, um, we probably can't define eosinophilic. What we probably can define is the person who's got no hint of eosinophilic asthma or very little hint of it. And then look at the likelihood. So combining factors to, and a consensus is reached within the group on the different combinations of factors to look at the likelihood of being eosinophilic as opposed to the, the least likelihood. So, Ramesh, I'm curious as to your uh, opinion on uh, the definition of uh, eosinophilic or, you know, eosinophilic phenotype. Um, w what struck you about the definition that, the, uh, that David and his group used? Well, I think there's a lot to be commended in the approach that they have taken with this paper because what they have done is they've created a multidimensional way of looking at eosinophilic status rather than a one-dimensional way of, of, of defining that. And if, if we do the traditional one-dimensional means of stating somebody is eosinophilic or not, perhaps by their blood eosinophil status or their sputum eosinophil status, we are introducing a restriction on the diagnostic criteria because we know that there is significant variability in eosinophilic status over time. So one option would be to study the eosinophilic status in one dimension longitudinally, for instance, with blood eosinophil counts. Um, and then you would be quite sure that you have actually taken into account that sort of fluctuation and variability over time. But that isn't very practical in, in clinical terms. And in our own research, we have done that. And we recently published a paper looking at the longitudinal patterns of blood eosinophil counts in our watch severe asthma cohort at Southampton. Um, and we did show that actually using that approach, we can identify that a very large proportion of people in uh, severe asthma setting do have an eosinophilic status, remarkably similar figures to what David's ISAR paper is showing. 83% uh, of the group would be demonstrated to be eosinophilic by that classification if you look longitudinally. But we haven't got the ability easily in clinical practice to look back over 10 years and scrutinize blood tests. So this is where the beauty of this algorithm comes in. It allows you what seems to be a very similar uh, outcome using potentially a much more clinically applicable uh, route. So a much more multidimensional approach with the real-life uh, cohort, um, which has uh, great clinical implications. So David, let's uh, jump into your key findings and then we can interpret them. David? Sure. And I, th I, think it's, I think it's interesting that, you know, Ramesh has found using long-term data, he ended up with a very similar proportion of patients with what looked like um, eosinophilic asthma. So our, our grade three um, most likely to have eosinophilic asthma was actually running at 83%. Um, our likely group at grade two was running at around 9%. Our least, our less likely is running at around 6%. And the very unlikely 
um, or unlike non-ESM emphatic, is only 2.6%. So the big message is most patients in the international sphere of emergency, when looked at carefully with this multidimensional approach, had evidence of eosinophilic asthma. So I think that's the main finding. I think there's a, I think there's some very important elements I think that that come out of that is that this means we don't necessarily need to have long-term data, um, and I, I think it's also important that patients on things like long-term oral steroids are very likely to be eosinophilic. Um, nasal polyps again, um, and the raised pheno. So many, many factors indicating that they have, uh, that they have eosinophilic asthma. So very, very different to what Gina had previously suggested. I guess the one criticism would be, and these are patients with international severe asthma registries, and by the very nature of that, in some countries, they may actually have been in those registries as a pathway to getting a biologic. So there may well be some preference in getting into those services for, for actually being a biologic eligible patient. But there's probably not much justification for that because actually only about half the patients in the National Spirit Registry actually do receive biologics. So there's plenty of people not. Um, I think there are a few other things. I think the patients with the eosinophilic asthma were more likely to be male and were more likely to be older and with a later onset of asthma. And intriguingly, a bit more likely to be given anti-IgE or leukotriene antagonists. The latter one particularly interested me because there is some evidence that leukotriene antagonists may actually be quite useful in things like smoking-related asthma or people who smoke and have asthma, which we certainly know is neutrophilic in nature for many of those patients. So there may well actually have been not deliberately necessarily, but actually by through clinical trial and error, a preference for giving leukotriene antagonists to people who actually had non-eosinophilic disease. So I think those are some of our main findings. And Ramesh, what struck you about the findings? Well, I, I absolutely agree with uh, David that the, the key spotlight is on the, the extremely high prevalence of eosinophilic phenotypes within the population with severe asthma, much higher than has previously been felt to be the case. Um, and uh, I think that's a real wake-up call. Um, and one of the, the interesting things is that with this algorithm, it's reliant on a, a decent characterization of the patient. It's multidimensional. And I, I think that really just, to me, emphasizes the need for that multidimensional, thorough characterization of your patients with problematic asthma in order to correctly classify them and then make sure that actually they have the, the right access to the right treatments if need be in due course. So let's talk about those uh, therapeutic implications. Uh, David, I'll bring you in here. Um, does this data say that we should be using biologic agents in those patients or do we still need to do validation studies? What would be the next steps to ensure that our patients get the right treatment based on your algorithm? I, I guess the, the, the challenge we have and globally is access to, to biologics because of price generally has been relatively limited and also because patients may not have been in the right sectors for care. So we recently published that there's a lot of what we might call potential hidden severe asthma hiding in the community. 
with many patients on GINA4 therapy or even GINA5 with a new classification including high-dose ICS um, who actually have two or more exacerbations per year on an ongoing basis who are not see, seeing a specialist to have their asthma properly phenotyped and assessed. So, I think, so that's one barrier that we think we need to overcome. A second barrier is about availability and access to the appropriate therapy. Um, we, we published a provocative paper in the Lancet, which we mentioned a couple of years ago, um, trying to suggest that actually we probably should be taking a phenotype-driven approach to managing much more of our asthma patients, not waiting until their very end stage. That does require studies in, in, in these patients earlier in the disease. It does require potentially changes in reimbursement, changes in cost too. So I think there's some real big challenges for us with an interest in managing more difficult to treat asthma and the importance of phenotyping and the importance of the right therapy. And it's not just medical, it's to some extent, it's political and health system dependent. Ramesh, your thoughts? No, I, I, I think that that's, um, I fully endorse what David was saying there. I, I think there are huge implications uh, if we are looking at a, an expanding uh, population of patients going on to biologic treatments. These are not cheap treatments. They're not short-term treatments. They require huge infrastructure to support the delivery of these medications as well. So I think what this should really act as a, a guiding light to do is, is to, to highlight that option uh, for patients. But there's then going to need to be another piece of work to look at how that is implemented. Not all these patients who are identified as eosinophilic, of course, are going to actually need um, a biologic treatment strategy. Uh, they may actually settle with appropriate other measures, treating uh, their asthma, but also treating their aggravating comorbidities. Um, but I think one of the, the, the key things will be the recognition that these patients have this type of disease, and if the disease doesn't uh, respond to the appropriate treatment measures, that then that biologic option is there rather than shutting the door on it and prematurely saying that somebody doesn't have that phenotype that would meet that type of treatment. David, uh, I, I think it's really important, Ramesh. Uh, David, I was, I was curious about this non-eosinophilic um, group. I mean, uh, can you further subdivide it based on your data, or what is our current understanding of that group? It's relatively limited, and I think, um, I mean, to, as, you know, the estimates here, depending on how we looked at it, were about 1.6 to 4%, so it's a really small populations. We're, we're talking, you know, less than 70 patients, depending on how we cut it in the data. Um, so to do much more 70 patients is relatively limited. And that, that's across, you know, across 11 countries in this paper. Now, since, since we did this analysis, which was we commenced this analysis two years ago, um, we've now got a much bigger data set. And I think the call has to be for all of us working in severe asthma to combine our resources to focus on this on this population um, to really look very hard at them. I mean, Ramesh in his editorial already pointed out 
that some of them actually did still have some evidence that they might have T2 disease. For instance, there some of them there was, some of them had eczema, for instance. So it may be even a smaller group than we think. I guess the other side of that coin, though, is is that this is probably not a yes/no phenomenon, and that's why we put the grading here. And the extent of being eosinophilic. Um, changes with time, with exposures, with environment, with treatments. Um, and so the extent of benefit may also vary a bit. And, the, and so the, there may be other components of the disease that are coming through at different times. So I think rather than seeing it as an absolute, there's a, there is a relative continuum. So it does mean that you can't get away with just using the biologics, for instance. There'll be some patients who are absolutely bond or purious and aphilic who actually, and it's not currently within licenses in most countries, but many patients do start to do it, is come off all their other therapy and manage perfectly well. But that's, the, that's actually a minority of patients. Uh, many patients do manage to reduce their ICS to, to gene of four levels and gene of five levels. But, that, but there is that challenge, I think, that we have to recognize that there's that variation and it's not a, it's not a yes-no phenomena. Interesting. And then, then Ramesh, your thoughts on this non-eosinophilic group? Yeah, I mean, it seems to be incredibly small, as David was saying, you know, from the ISAR data. It was a bit larger in our data that we recently published in the WATCH study when we took a cutoff of 0 0.3 um, for the eosinophil counts. But if we reduced that down to 0 0.2, it, the proportion of non-eosinophilic subjects fell down to about 3%. So it, um, it, it does seem to be incredibly small if you properly characterize your patients. And even that small number might be an overrepresentation, as I, I mentioned in, in the, um, the editorial that um, accompanies this paper. Um, so I think it's always problematic when you define a group by what it hasn't got. Um, I always feel a bit uneasy by, by saying this is a group that are non-eosinophilic, largely by virtue of the fact that they, they don't show the eosinophil signal and how confident are you that you haven't captured that. And I think this may be why these recent studies like the ISAR and the WATCH study, which approach uh, the eosinophilic status in novel ways compared to previous estimates, are beginning to show such a low prevalence of non-eosinophilic um, disease. But um, I guess there is something else to consider here. Because um, if we are looking at asthma in terms of eosinophilic versus non-eosinophilic, and when we properly scrutinize asthma in those terms, we find that overwhelmingly the population falls into the eosinophilic category, we probably need to also have a thought process as to where we go from here in trying to understand the sort of endotypic diversity of severe asthma, uh, almost looking beyond that eosinophil versus non-eosinophil paradigm um, to see whether we can understand it better through further um, sort of mechanistic um, frameworks. Uh, and it'd be interesting to, uh, to hear what David um, feels about that sort of possibility. David? I, I do think I do think that's a very interesting concept. And I, I think that would be a, a great idea. Um, so I, 
I think we, we, we probably have to be, a, you know, I think there's, there's a real need to focus in together on this group. Um, and I, the other thing that I think stimulates me is to what extent this looks, at how applicable this is to mild to moderate asthma. Um, because at the moment, Gina only suggests phenotyping um, for those with difficult to treat asthma. And I, I, I think I've always been in the belief camp, and I say it's about belief, not necessarily fully evidence-driven, um, but in the belief camp that uh, we should be phenotyping many more of our patients with asthma. Um, and and how we might do that in community settings, I think, is, is a bit of an interesting challenge. And so we, we do have a project underway at the moment um, to look at the extent of um, applying this algorithm in a number of other cohorts. Um, so one of those being our optimum patient care research database in the UK, which has got 12 million patients within it, where we have longitudinal um, eosinophil data, etc. So to look at the extent of this group there. Also to look at some other well-characterized cohorts, so the novelty study, which has got a mix of asthma, COPD, and overlap patients well-characterized. It's going to be looking at this, and I know there's some work going to come up with this gradient coming up, I think, at the European Respiratory Society meeting later this year. So I think understanding this across a broader range of asthma is going to be incredibly important. And I think it does trigger that that idea that we, we've been a bit too complacent about, a, I think, a, an approach to asthma, which has been very much about um, giving them therapy and seeing if it works and if it doesn't give them more therapy, as opposed to a, a more thoughtful approach to asthma. I was happy to think what Ramesh thinks on that one. No, I, I think absolutely. I, I think it's going to be really fascinating to see how these sort of multidimensional classifications play out in different asthma populations. Um, yeah. And are there differences between milder asthma and severe asthma? Um, there might be some speculation that the, the isnophilic T2 status might not be uh, as prevalent in milder asthma groups, but that is pure speculation. There isn't clear evidence on that. And I, I think that what is clear is that we need to apply this sort of structured approach across the board, I think, and I, I would endorse what you were saying there, David. Um, there's a lot that we just don't know, and a lot is based on um, sort of consensus and speculation, and, and actually it would be good to actually get to grips and create a, uh, a clearer sort of landscape of what we're dealing with uh, in terms of asthma. So, Ramesh, if you had uh, unlimited funding, um, uh, which way would you go about targeting this, or what approach would you adopt to, to get to the bottom of it? Well, I, I think we do need to define more clearly how the, um, the isnophilic and non-isnophilic groups do play out across the asthma spectrum. I think that's going to be uh, very important. Um, and, and then whether that actually helps us address mild, moderate asthma more successfully and whether that in turn w w would help us uh, diminish the burden of more severe asthma, presuming that there is a progression uh, across the severity spectrum. But I I'd return to that point that I made earlier, which is there is going to be a need, I think, 
as well as trying to crystallize our understanding of eosinophilic and non-eosinophilic asthma, T2 and non-T2 asthma. But I think there's going to need to be um, a revisiting of the concepts uh, in terms of the endotypes of more severe asthma at least to see what other mechanisms come into play. I mean, we know for a fact that you know, we give these biologic drugs to our patients now with increasing frequency, and we do meet with good success, and you know, a lot of patients do well. But a proportion of patients with good eosinophilic or T2 uh, sort of phenotype signatures may remain refractory to these treatments. So there, there is a need, I, I think, to look further, um, you know, and I think also when we look at the biologic uh, responders, um, we see that we actually label biologic responses in still relatively crude terms in our clinical practice, largely based on improvements in uh, steroid dependency and reductions in exacerbation rates, for instance. Um, and actually, if we look in hard terms at the true responders to these biologic drugs, so-called super responders, which are the people who do really well, potentially, for want of a better phrase, go into remission. It's a relative minority of people that, that we give these drugs to, you know, maybe 30 40% at most. Uh, so there is a need, I think, to still keep looking um, and, and trying to define what else might be relevant. Um, we've come a long way with this isnophil, non isnophil paradigm, T2, non-T2 paradigm, but I don't think we're there yet in terms of having it all sorted. So if you gave me unlimited funding, um, which would be wonderful, I, I would certainly want to pursue that question with uh, sort of renewed vigor. And David, if you were also given that opportunity, based on this research, where would you want to go? So I'm, in, I'm in the same camp as Ramesh there that... Um, I think what what we now need is the, is the brave and big early interventions that done in a relatively real life population. So there's a number of straws in the wind that suggest the, the needs for this. Um, one is that um, many of the patients with in severe asthma services are generally older, and they, as previously published in Chess. Many have, the majority actually have impaired lung function post bronchodilator. They're a degree of fixed airway obstruction, even, um, and with most of them never smoking. So something has happened to them along the way. And as we look through the data sets, we see a, a real persistence in terms of the clinical pattern of people using um, oral corticosteroids treated exacerbations, a couple of courses a year, one to two courses, over many, many years. And one of the reasons why we may be getting our limited response with our biologics, one of the reasons, it may be about phenotype, but it may also be about the fact that they've had very long-term disease and with repeated exacerbations. And so I'm, I'm particularly keen on an early intervention based on phenotype and risk um, to think about targeting that population in their 20s and 30s um, with potentially with biologics and, and actually both looking at what happens to their steroid use and there's a lot of burden from steroids and in terms of their exacerbation prevention and their long-term lung function and development of severe asthma. I think 
that's the brave study that we need to go for. Getting that one funded may be a bit of a challenge, but it, but I think it would be that would be that would be my, that that would be my dream, and and that's what we're already we are starting to lobby and push for that. How would you go about doing that? So one of the things that you have to unpack is, I mean, obviously those who smoke, uh, you can screen for smoking and, and that contribution. But how do you unpack pollution and bad air quality that may be also affecting uh, the patient's breathing and causing um, uh, fixed airway obstruction uh, long term? Yeah, no, and that's it's not it's not easy. Um, the the approach that we've considered, and we, we, we do actually have a bit of a design in the, on, a, on a drawing board, was to use um, large electronic medical records to generate our at-risk populations. So we, we had data which we presented at the ATS um, showing that um, people with repeated exacerbations in their 20s and 30s and 40s had... Um, much far, have started out with worse lung function and had faster lung function dec- decline than older patients. So, suggesting there is a target group in their age group. You could, of course, stratify by things like um, expo- population exposure to pollution based on where people live. But I, I'm, I'm particularly keen on trying to use these types of data sets to recruit patients so that you have well-characterized people who are not yet... Because it's very hard to spot them. They're not getting into, you know, Ramesh's um, difficult-to-treat asthma services. They're sitting out there hiding in the community. So, and I think that's where we, we would be bringing that intervention into play. To make it affordable and doable long-term, it has to be relatively pragmatic in nature. So almost registry-based, um, ideally randomized, so that one can actually put this into place without it being a massively costly exercise. Uh, a very different type of model to that might, that might have been done for licensing trials of biologics. And there are limitations with these registry uh, studies, um, as I think you alluded to earlier. Um, and the question I had was, how confident are you that this group of patients in this registry trial that you published here in CHEST um, is truly representative of um, uh, severe asthmatics. You had mentioned that maybe patients were recruited into this uh, uh, study because um, they were being considered for biologics. Mm-hmm. No, and I think that was one of the issues that was a concern, particularly I think there was quite a lot of UK patients in here, is that most many of the patients in the UK registries are there because they're going to get biologics. However, we had a good large proportion of non-biologic patients and, uh, and a lot of patients from other countries, so with similar patterns of disease. So I think that's very reassuring. I think the work that we're also doing using primary care data sets to look at whether, what this phenotype looks like in a broader population will also help to underpin that. I'm, co- I'm confident it may not be quite the this extremely high percentage that we've got here, but I don't think it's going to be very different. Um, and we did play with different cut points and different things here, and it didn't really change things. So I, I think it's likely to be representative, but maybe a few percentage points different might be all that would change, I think, if we got everybody who had difficult-to-treat asthma in there. 
Interesting. And then, uh, Ramesh, you had the opportunity to review this paper. Um, what important limitations uh, would you want the audience to be aware of? And also, what uh, uh, important data would you um, inform researchers for future studies uh, that they need to conduct based on these limitations? Sure. I, I think you know, the, the approach has to be commended that they've used here uh, with the real-world data, large registry, multinational um, so uh, I think taking that all into account, uh, that there are one or two limitations in an ideal situation. Um, I think it would probably it'd be interesting to see how the, uh, the data played out differently between the different countries. Um, and as David mentioned there, um, the UK, I think, constitutes about 40% uh, of the population studied in this paper. Um, so uh, heavy influence on the findings would have come from that one country. Um, and, and one potential uh, avenue which could have been explored might have been to look at the UK data uh, 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 as one entity and then see whether that replicated in uh, the, the more global data so you get a sort of validation um, through the ISAR process and ISAR is you know perfectly uh, sort of constituted to be able to do that um, but uh, the other things that I, I, I would sort of suggest which are probably difficult in a study of the size of ISAR would be to corroborate the sort of eosinophilic status um, with a bit more hard data asthma is an airways disease and if there were things like um, sputum measures in a subset even of patients that might have corroborated that would actually lend credence to the findings. But that's not without difficulty. Um, I think we're, we're all very aware that induced sputum is not a straightforward test to apply. It, it doesn't lend itself easily to clinical practice and it's subject to variability uh, as well. But it would be fascinating to see how those ISAR, ISAR gradient algorithms play out uh, against sputum phenotype-based classification of eosinophilic versus non-eosinophilic status, uh, for, for instance. So those were the, the few sort of caveats that, that, that I, I had about um, the data. But generally, I, I was very uh, fascinated to see the findings um, and not at all skeptical to see such a high level of eosinophilic status, given what we had seen in our own recent work. Yeah, definitely intriguing findings. Uh, David, uh, what would you have changed in your study, knowing what you know now? Or, or what studies would you um, advise researchers do based on this uh, data uh, to further get to uh, the, the best uh, phenotype uh, for asthma? I think the... I mean, I'd love to have all of the biomarkers for all of the patients. We had some, some countries didn't have pheno available to them. It's not, it's not all fully reimbursed to be done in a number of countries. Um, I think there's also sometimes some real variability in capturing data on nasal polyps. We saw substantial variation in that between countries. So I think there are some elements where, where we, we need to think hard. And I think there's a, you know, 
the lung physician may not think so much about the nasal polyps as a very important factor, but I think that's one that I would be driving. And also the value, I think, of collecting the pheno. But then I also think now the value of actually automatically collating this type of score, the multidimensional score, so that it's always there. Um, and I think that would help us, um, that would help us a lot um, moving forward. Definitely. Um, so, David and Ramesh, um, I do want to be mindful of your time. So, as we draw um, to the end of this podcast, I want to give you all each an opportunity to share um, what your thoughts on this paper mean. Uh, what are the implications in terms of future research and clinical practice? Um, so, I'll let uh, Ramesh uh, kick us off and then uh, let David have the final word. Ramesh? Oh, thanks, Dominique. From, from my point of view, I think... It, Speaking clinically, I, I think the key take-home message for me is to exercise caution before you define non-isoclinic status in your severe asthma patients and to characterize those patients very carefully. And I think this, this algorithm that has been created is a really useful prompt to encourage that. And then in, in, in research terms, I think we need to know how this algorithm applies to wider asthma populations, as we've discussed. And for me, it is also a trigger to think beyond the eosinophilic, non-eosinophilic paradigm as to what else might be contributing uh, to explain some of the diversity that our patients, if they're all eosinophilic, might be experiencing. Thank you, Ramesh. And David? So I think I very much agree with Ramesh is that we shouldn't dismiss um, a patient as being non-eosinophilic on simply the value of their bloody eosinophil count when, when we see them. We need, to, we need to either look back longer, if we've got access to um, electronic medical record data with longitudinal blood tests, um, and look at the other features that we've outlined here. So I, th I think it's important to, to really think very hard about that patient. And I think that's also going to be a trigger and an important discussion when we think about high-risk patients, people getting frequent exacerbations who don't appear to be eligible for biologics on first glance, but actually they may well be eligible and may well be very responsive and may well thoroughly justify that intervention. Um, so I think that, that for me, is the big message. The future research that I'd like to see is a, is a much more thinking about earlier intervention in people who are high risk with this type of phenotype and to think about earlier intervention in, in younger patients with potentially future severe asthma. Yeah, I think both of you have given us a, a lot to ponder. It's been really exciting to see the great leaps and bounds that we've made over the last decade or so, but it looks like there's a whole lot more work for us to do, and uh, we're very fortunate to have both of you as our expert guests uh, for giving us a great conversation. I'd like to thank you both and to thank the chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is the Chess Podcast.